this little prophetic book of Nahum, if you're there with me this morning, I'd love for you to look at verse 1. It's interesting, and we've noted this before, how many times in the minor prophetic books the Lord begins with referring to that message as a burden. The burden of Nineveh. The word burden here in verse 1 is a very interesting word. We understand a burden to be a heavy pack, something that presses you down, and there is a sense of that here, that it was a burden. This message, this prophecy was a burden on the, on the heart and mind of God's prophet Nahum. But yet it carries, even goes a little bit farther. It means something that is heavy that was lifted up. Something even in its context, as we understand prophetically the role of the prophet, it's a burden, it's a heavy thing, it's a message that weighed on him that he lifted high and he proclaimed and he prophesied and he preached and he declared this was a burden from God, a message from the Lord that he put on the heart and mind of his man. Can I say this, my dear friend, that any God-called preacher, anybody who uh, has God's call, God's hand on them, when God gives them a message, they understand at least in some small way, the sense of what God is saying through Nahum. That there's a message. They didn't get it from another man. They didn't get it from their own mind. It came from God. It's a message from God. It's a burden that God put on their soul for that moment. And for those people, I understand a little bit about that. I wonder if Nahum ever laid awake at night with this burden on his mind. Guarantee he did. Wonder if even while he was trying to eat at times, his appetite was taken away because of this burden that God had put on him, this message that he needed to declare. And if he didn't declare it and he didn't give it and he didn't share it, he would just about die. That's the burden from God. That's the message from God. And I want to say this this morning, that it's, past time in our churches and with men of God in our generation that this is the kind of burden we must feel from the Lord to declare God's truth to a generation and a group of people that were just as damned just as needy just as in desperate need of God's grace and mercy as the Ninevites were Nineveh was a major city of Assyria. If you understand much about biblical history, you understand that the Ninevite, that, that the Assyrians were the enemies of God's people. And in 722 BC, they came and they ransacked the north, took many of those inhabitants of the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity. They threatened the southern kingdom, they threatened Judah, Jerusalem. We understand, as we read and read in the Old Testament in Kings, uh, how that the Lord sent an angel. Uh, the angel of the Lord came and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers that had encamped and surrounded that territory with the intent of invasion. That God killed them. The angel of the Lord killed them, took them out. This is the same group of people. Uh, some scholars say that this was even a hundred plus years before God actually brought judgment on the Assyrians, that he's using 
Nahum as the mouthpiece of deity to foretell the destruction of Nineveh and the Assyrians. We're not sure about the timeline. We do know this for sure. We know Nahum was a prophet. We know that he delivered God's message. And we know that God's message was fulfilled in God's timing. And that God did exactly what he said he would do. Verse 1 goes on to say that the book, the book of the vision. That means God gave this vision, this revelation to this prophet Nahum. The Elkishite. The Elkishite. One who was from Elkishai. Now there's disagreement about who Elkishai was. Some say that Elkishai was the term that referred to this place where Nahum was from. That it was near Galilee. Some say that Elkishai was his father's name or a family name. And the truth of the matter is it does point to origin. But we don't, we're not for sure if that's his daddy's name or the city, the little town, the village that he was from. We just know that he was known as the Elkishite. We're not even exactly sure when he lived. But this is what we're sure of. He was a man of God. And God gave him a message. And that message centered on the sovereignty of God and the righteousness of God. And God's dealings with this world. And God fulfilled every bit of the prophecy that he gave to Nahum just as he has fulfilled and will fulfill every smack dab piece of prophecy that God ever gave in his word. Somebody said you can take it to the bank, you can mark it down, it's as good as done. Every single promise in this Bible is going to be fulfilled. Look at verse 2. Now this is an interesting statement. God is jealous. Now can we stop right there? In our day and time, we, we kind of get a little nervous when we read those words. Wait a minute, preacher, I thought jealousy was a bad thing. Well, humanly speaking, it is. But never forget, when it says God is jealous, by the way, that's the same Hebrew word for zealous, for zeal. God is zealous. God is jealous. Jealous for what? Can I tell you what God is jealous for? And he's the only one that has the right to be jealous for this. He is jealous for his own glory and name. God is zealous. He's jealous for his own glory. And he has every right to be. It says that the Lord revengeth. Again, listen to these words. The Lord takes revenge. Now preacher, how is that? Does that mean God is a vengeful God? Not necessarily. Not in the sense of a human vengeance or a human retaliation. That's how you and I act and that's how you and I think. But I want to encourage you this morning. When you're studying the Lord and you're reading about God and we're reading and we're reading truth about the Lord's character and his attributes, it is easy for us To view, listen, to view God's character just as we would view someone else's character. To look at the Lord through human lenses. And I want to tell you this very clearly this morning. 
Don't ever look at the Lord through human lenses. Look at the Lord through the lens of the truth of the Bible. And it is virtually, virtually impossible for us to fully, fully comprehend just how awesome and majestic and righteous and powerful our God is. He's he's beyond description. We live in the realm of humanity. God doesn't. God doesn't dwell in humanity. He loves humanity. He created us as humans. But God exists on a totally higher plane. That's why in studying theology and the person of God and the doctrine of God, you'll never exhaust that subject and I won't either. God is unlike us in so many ways, even though you and I are created in God's image. He created us in His image. And yet even as humans created in the image of God, because we are flawed people, because of the curse of sin, because of our unregenerate part of our nature, it is impossible for us to fully, fully comprehend just exactly how awesome and powerful and unique God is. If there's ever anyone who has the right to be and exercise vengeance, it is the Lord. He knows the beginning from the the end from the beginning. He knows the hearts and motives of every person. He knows everyone intimately and perfectly and infinitely. And it's interesting that the nation he was dealing with here through this prophecy was the Assyrians. And if you understand, he teaches about this and he basically wants us to understand that that same nation that he used as a rod to scourge his own people, now it is time for them to be judged by the Lord. That's why if you read on in verse 3, it says God is slow to anger, and He is. That means He's long-suffering, He's slow to anger. Notice this, He's, has great, he's great in power. In fact, He's so great in power, we can't even comprehend it. And He will not at all acquit the wicked. Now you say, preacher, what does that mean? I thought God was a merciful God. I thought he just said here in verse 3 that the Lord is slow to anger. And that is true. And God is a merciful God. That statement, he will not at all acquit the wicked. It simply carries the idea. He's not going to let sinners get by with sin. That's what he means. It means he's not going to wink. I have to figure out which eye I was going to wink with there. He's not going to wink at my sin or yours. He's not going to let people slide. Now you see, hear me, hear me. That's our sense of justice, right? That's the justice system you and I are familiar with in at least our country. And our country's not supposed to be corrupt, but you understand in all levels of judicial and executive politics, there's always a little bit in the threat and the presence of corruption. Hey, I'll slide you a little bit of this and you'll turn a blind eye to it. You'll forget that that day in here. Hey, let let me scratch your back and you scratch mine. 
There's none of that. There's none of that with the Lord. The one who keeps a perfect account is the only one who has the right and authority to bring the sword and to bring swift and sure judgment. And aren't you glad he knows and he deals with all of us like this? And he says, basically, I want you to understand that while I use the Assyrian nation as a pawn, they didn't even realize it. But God is so sovereign, hear me now, God is so sovereign that he can take even the nations of the world and the peoples of the world and use them in ways and they not even be aware of it. So we learn that God will execute wrath on those that do and perform sin. He will execute wrath on the ungodly. He's the God of vengeance. The Lord revengeth, verse 2, and is furious. Now listen carefully. You're like, preacher, I didn't show up for church to hear all this this morning. Are you angry? Oh, no, friend. But it does say that God is furious. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait. You telling me that God's angry? No, I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to let the Bible tell you that. You see, listen carefully. In our culture, we have such... We, we're, we're so prone to ricochet when it comes to doctrine. Very few ever seems like land on a biblical balance when it comes to issues. And so we're always prone and given to extremes, right? So in the church, in theological circles, there's an extreme that says that God is always angry. (laughs) He just stays mad. And that's the picture we get of God and that is portrayed about the Lord. That he's always ticked off. Can I tell you that that's because we look at God through the lens of our own human experience. And then there's an extreme that says, well, no, that's not the case. God is never angry. He is always loving. And he's always cushy. And he's always soft. And he always bounces around in a big purple suit. And his nickname is Barney. Right? (laughs) That's the Lord. Never angry at sin. Can I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that there's a biblical balance in the middle. Yes, God is 100% holy and righteous. And yes, he's 100% love. And those two things merge perfectly and are intertwined perfectly in the character of God. God is not moody. God is not fickle. God is not given to extremes. I'm talking about the God of the Bible, not the God of our own imagination, not the God of our own making. You say, is the Lord angry? Can I say this? Yes, the Lord is angry at sin. I said the Lord is angry at sin. Is it okay for me to say that? Sure, because it's right, it's true. The Lord loves sinners. 
but he is angry at sin. And he was so angry at injustice and sin, hear me, that he sent his only son to be the satisfaction. The Bible word, the King James word is propitiation. The full atonement for that sin. So he says, I want you to know, I am angry. The word is furious. That word carries the idea of when in our understanding, and I'm thankful the Lord uses such picturesque language to help us understand. It's the idea of of an animal that is breathing out wrath, judgment. Say, wait a minute, are you saying God is out of control? Oh no, my friend, God is perfectly always in control, not just of the circumstances and surroundings and events. God is always perfectly in control of himself. You never have to wonder if God's wrath or God's judgment or God's works or exercises with individuals and his dealings with individuals, if it's going to be too severe. No, my dear friend, look, every person in this room who has ever experienced corporal punishment, say amen if that's you growing up, amen. Tell the truth, let the Lord love you, right? There, I'm sure in my understanding, there have been a time or two in my life when I got tore up, maybe with a little bit too much severity. didn't hurt me or anything probably needed it at other times right but can I tell you something and I'm sure as a dad I'm sure I've acted that way and done that not on purpose not intentionally but if you're a a dad in here and you've exercised the rod you may walk away at times and feel like that you have done it maybe to a little bit of extremity not intentionally Can I tell you something, though? You never have to wonder or worry about that about the Lord. When he deals with people, and he deals with individuals, and he deals with nations, and he deals with civilization, when he meets out his vengeance, and he meets out his wrath and his judgment on sin, he does it, can I say this, perfectly. Just just exactly the right amount, just exactly when needed. And can I say this to you? You and I as humans, mankind is in no position to put God in court and to put him on trial. Can I say this? God is not on trial in the book of Nahum. The Assyrians were on trial. And in your life and mine, God is not on trial. We're the ones on trial. But I want us to have a picture of the true God. He's not given to extremes. He's not a hateful God. He's not a cold God who's waiting to pounce. No, 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 no. Talking about extremes here. 
He's the perfect God who has the perfect manifestation of holiness and justice and mercy and love. And you see that meeting together beautifully on the cross of the Son. If you want to know how God views sin and sinners, all we have to do is look at the cross. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and reserveth wrath for his enemies. Preacher, it said there God has enemies. I didn't think God has enemies. Surely that's not right, is it? God doesn't have any enemies, does he? The Bible talks about the enemies of the Lord. The enemies of God are those who have set themselves against the Lord and his sovereign control in this world. He even says in the New Testament about those that are proud and that are haughty and to exercise pride in their life. He even says about them that God will resist the proud. Let's talk about that sin for just a moment, right? That word literally means that he will set himself up as an army sets itself in place against his opposing army. He will set himself against the proud. There are enemies to the Lord. Those who set themselves up against him. And then he says, the Lord is slow to anger. Verse 3, he's great in power. He will not at all acquit the wicked. He's not going to let them slide. And then I close with this, friend. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He shows patience to evildoers. He shows long-suffering to his enemies. And the term long-suffering in the Old Testament literally means he's long of nostrils. <laughs> that means when it comes to breathing out his anger, it takes a long time for his anger to be breathed out. And he has his way in the storm. Matthew Poole said about this word storm, the Hebrew word speaks of a dreadful tempest which makes men full of fear and horror. One writer said, What to the mind of man is more imposing than the towering storm clouds and what more terrifying than the onrushing whirlwind? And I can say that very few things. God says that those things that cause us fear and that those things that we dread and those things and elements even of the atmospheric world and the natural elements that those things that we look at and we dread happening, a.k.a. hurricanes and storms. Those things that while we're here this morning and all of us, our minds are on individuals that we know who have suffered directly because of this event. That, that began off the coast of Africa as, as just a bunch of clouds forming 
forming near the equator over warm ocean waters, turned into a tropical disturbance that turned into a tropical depression that turned into a tropical storm, and now that had turned into a full-blown hurricane, or the technical term is a, a tropical cyclone, and that's what it became. And we, we wonder and we scratch our head as we see the loss of life. Tree limbs coming into homes. A precious mom and an infant in Wilmington losing their life. A 61-year-old lady or 71-year-old lady dying in her home because the rescuers couldn't get to her. She had a medical situation. They couldn't get to her. And, 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 and there, there was so much debris and trees down around her home. They couldn't even get in her home and she perished. Those that were swept away in their vehicles because they came upon floodwaters and didn't even realize it in the darkness. People whose homes that they've lived in for 30, 40 years where the water now has just destroyed it all. They had to be rescued by swift water rescue personnel on little john boats coming down their street to rescue them from their attic. That falls in this category. And we're like, Lord, we don't understand that. What in the world? Why? Why did you let that happen? God says, hear me. I want you to know that I move things in this world. I move pieces in this world. I put them in place, watch this, at my pleasure. According to my timetable. According to my system of right and wrong. I, the Lord, who am sovereign. That means he's he's totally in control. He is our creator. The creator of heaven and earth has absolute right and full authority to do and allow whatever he desires. And I don't have to agree with him. But he's not the one that's wrong. God never exercises injustice. You'll never point a finger at the Lord and say, Hey, hey, hey! You did wrong here! No. God never does wrong. He is perfect in character. Perfect and absolute in sovereignty. I don't have to like what he chooses to do. I don't even have to necessarily, from a human, my little pea brain perspective, I don't even have to agree. God allow this to show his strength and sovereignty to show us our limitations here's a hard fact that must be proclaimed loudly and clearly and consistently in our culture and in our generation you ready for this fact we're not going to like it but it's true you ready he's God 
We are not. And he has the right to do whatever he chooses to do according to his divine pleasure. We are palms in his hand. The elements of this world are palms in his hand. And he maneuvers according to his good will and plan and pleasure. What he chooses to do. And he's right to do that. He uses these storms to grab our attention. He's grabbed mine. He uses storms, and I'm not just talking about atmospheric storms. I'm talking about the difficulties that come into your life and mine. He uses these things. He, he controls the storm. He, he, he has his way in them. He accomplishes his purpose, and he brings himself glory through the storms. So here's the takeaway, and then we'll pray together. So what's my response, CP? Here it is. I am to trust his work, his ways, and his wisdom. He knows. And he deals specifically and individually. He knows about this precious family, this man and the ministry and his son. He knew, he knows what has happened in their situation. He knows about the flood victims, each one by name. The scripture says he even knows the very numbers of hair on their head. He knows. Trust him. Trust that what he's doing is right. Not because I said it, but because this book says it. Not because you agree with it from a human perspective, but because this book says it. And this book is truth. Say to him today, because I'm looking in the faces of individuals and the storm you've been going through didn't just blow up on us on Thursday. For some of you in this room, you've been in a storm for a while. And it might not have been an atmospheric storm. It could be a financial storm or a physical storm or a relational storm or whatever it is. Would you say to the Lord today, right now, Lord, I trust you and I ask you for grace to trust you more. I trust you, Lord. It's not easy at times. My circumstances may not be easy. And the storm I'm going through may not be easy. But Lord, I choose to trust you. To whom else shall I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Where am I going to go? Other than to you. And I don't understand what he does all the times. I hadn't always understood times and events and seasons in my life. Times as a young man of growing up in a fatherless home. Times even as a young married man when my wife went through seasons of infertility not being able to have children. Some of y'all were there. 
I didn't understand that. She didn't understand that. I'm talking about difficult seasons of losing a loved one and financial pressure. And even sometimes the attack of Satan himself. When you feel like he has all of his guns aimed and unleashed on you. You ever been there? You come to the Lord and you say, Lord, I trust you. 